This is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. For today's episode, we interviewed Ms. Valerie Jarrett, a distinguished senior fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. Most recently, Jarrett was a senior advisor to President Barack Obama. During her time at the White House, she oversaw the Offices of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs and chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. Jarrett has an extensive background in both the public and the private sector. She served as chairman of the Chicago Transit Board, Chicago Commissioner of Planning and Development, and Deputy Chief of Staff for Chicago Mayor Richard M. Daley. Currently, she serves as a board member of Aerial Capital Management Holdings, 2U Incorporated, and Lyft. Jared spoke with us about her professional experience in law and public service, about her views on the Me Too movement and gender equality in the workplace, and about the current project she is working on at Chicago. Well, Ms. Jared, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. Uh, we're excited to have you at the University of Chicago Law School back on campus, which is great. I feel like I'm back home. <laughs> and so I guess, we, you know, being in law school, we just kind of wanted to start with, you know, how has having a, you know, a JD kind of influenced your career? Uh, pretty dramatically, I would say, since I spent 10 years of my life practicing law, six in the private sector, uh, four working in the Corporation Counsel's Office for the City of Chicago. I think going to law school teaches you uh, critical thinking that's helpful even if you never practice a single day. It's fun to win arguments in your personal life as well as your professional life. And I think that you do learn to think like a lawyer, and that's an important quality. I also think that um, even though I stopped practicing law in 1991, uh, I'm a better client having been a lawyer. I think I color well within the lines, and I know when I speak with my lawyers, they always say it's such a relief to have a lawyer who's not trying to practice law but understands that there are some constraints and is willing to work within those constraints. Um, and I do think were I to go back and practice law again, I would be a better lawyer having been a client. Okay. So I think in, in the course of a career, it's probably good to try both just so that you see what your clients are looking for when you're practicing law and you understand what your lawyers are trying to keep you from getting into trouble when you are actually the client. So I have no regrets for law school um, and certainly no regrets for having practiced for 10 years. And do you think um, you've thought of the law differently, whether you were in you know a business setting or working for the city of Chicago or in the White House? Do you think... Well, I think it makes a difference whether or not you're trying to abide by the laws or you're trying to change the laws. So as a policymaker in government, you're trying to make the world better. And so you're thinking of laws that you can craft that will actually improve people's lives. At least that should be your objective. And I think uh, during my time uh, as a client in the city of Chicago, say, when I was running the Department of Planning and Development, we prepared redevelopment agreements that set forth the terms pursuant to which developers would agree to do um, amenities that would be in the public benefit in exchange for zoning. That's one example. And so I thought it was really helpful to have that law degree as we were drafting ordinances that would codify what we were trying to, um, the public good we were trying to get. Same thing at the federal level on a much more macro level. So you're trying to figure out how do I ensure that everyone can have 
access to affordable health care, making sure that you get all of the different pieces together in a document that, that is going to withstand, as we found, constitutional scrutiny, not once but twice, is really important. And again, I think that having a background in the law helped figure out how to draft provisions in a way that, that they would stand up. And we'd, uh, we'd also be interested in hearing about how your experience at the White House has shaped your views on the law. I mean, are there any particular legal issues that you've reconsidered or kind of seen in a new light as a result of your policy experience at the White House? Well, there's some laws that I think are desperately in need of reform. Criminal justice would be one of them. I think that our existing criminal justice system is unjust. I think it is not equitable. And I think that it is... Um, punitive on the basis of income, and that shouldn't be the case. So I think, for example, our bail system should be substantially reformed. I think that people who can't make bail end up spending time in jail because they're poor, and they end up pleading to a lesser offense to get out of jail because they're poor, and therefore they have a criminal record, and I think that's inequitable. That's just one example. I think mandatory minimum sentences on particularly on nonviolent drug offenders, is a law that should change. And we tried mightily to change it when we were in the White House and were unable to, we were able to get consensus in the House and the Senate to pass the law. We were able to get the chairman of the Judiciary Committee in both the House and the Senate to support the changes. We were unable to get the leader of the Senate to call it to the floor for a vote. And so one of the frustrating things that I learned in Washington is how even when everyone agrees that a new law is necessary, uh, even when all the legislators agree that a new law is necessary, you still have some political impediments that get in the way. And that's extremely frustrating. Another good example would be keeping guns out of the wrong hands. The American people and um Left to their own devices, most members of Congress would probably say, yeah, we should have sensible background checks to make sure that people who are a threat to themselves or to others shouldn't have a gun. But what enters the equation has nothing to do with the law. It has to do with money and politics. And so when organizations like the NRA are as well-funded as they are and they're willing to use those resources um, to achieve their public policy objective, then it's not it's not on the merits and it's not even tied to the weather vein of the American people. It's tied to money. And so getting money out of politics, I think, would make life a lot easier in Washington. Do you think the the issues of trying to work with people with different views are are different at the national level than perhaps in your experience working for the city? Is it kind of a different dynamic or is it kind of more of the same? I found that public service at the local level was much less partisan. And I would even say at the state level. One of my responsibilities in the White House was overseeing the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, and those are all the elected officials who are not members of Congress. And I found that, for the most part, governors, mayors, state legislators weren't as worried about winning political points Sure, they wanted to get reelected, but they actually also wanted to make life better for their constituents. And part of it is, if you take the mayor, well, your constituents are literally your next door neighbor. They have your phone number. They know where to find you. You are. We used to say it's really where the rubber meets the road. And uh, governors 
not as close, but they're chief executives. And so they're trying to figure out what can I do to make my state work better? And uh, I had um, many Republican governors, for example, with whom I worked very closely. And one of the things we prided ourselves was ensuring that our Office of Intergovernmental Affairs was not a political office. So no matter what party, if a elected official called, I responded. And our view was their constituents are our constituents. And so we didn't have time to be playing political games with them. We were there. And so it could be if there was a hurricane and Governor Christie said, yes, President Obama is always welcome to come to my state. He's the president of the United States and you're bringing resources. Or it could be um, going to Oklahoma also when there's a tragedy or any of the states where we had these either man-made tragedies in the event of gun violence or um, forces of nature, uh, at the state and local level, people tend to just try to work together to get things done. That's not every single one of them, but it's, it's far more than you find in Congress. Do you think there's lessons that can be applied in the legal world? The reason why I went into transactional law was because I didn't want to fight. I didn't like the winner-loser of, of litigation. My daughter was a litigator. She liked to win. <laughs> and I wanted everybody, I wanted to be able to put myself in your shoes and figure out, okay, what does it take for you to think this was a win for you? And then I knew what it took for me to think it was a win. And then let's just figure out how we can get us both happy. But you're right in that oftentimes lawyers are advocates. And so they're taking a position and they want to win. I think the difference in Washington now and maybe more broadly in our culture is we are disagreeing and being disagreeable. And I think that you can have a well-fought battle on the merits and then still treat people humanely. And I worry that in this new climate and with social media that can be an incredible force for good, uh, Y'all don't know how lucky you are to just be able to pick up a phone and not have to traipse across campus to go to the library every time you want to figure out something. So it's wonderful, and it brings people together and allows them to communicate in a much more um, uh, extraordinary, larger way. But it also can be very toxic, and it can be very insular, and people can just stay in their little echo chamber and take in information on demand as opposed to getting outside of that comfort zone. And so one of the, I think, strengths of this university and the law school in particular is that you learn how to use that muscle. You learn how to, you learn how to argue all sides of a case. You learn how to look at all perspectives of a case in order to get up there and argue them. And that, um, that leads to a certain level of empathy. And I think that's missing generally in our society today. People willing to say, all right, I might disagree with you, but let me open up my mind and my heart and try to actually understand where you're coming from. So I guess uh, shifting gears a little bit, um, we'd be interested in hearing more about what motivated you to pursue a career in public service in the first place, especially because you said you you started out in private practice. What motivated that shift? Uh, Misery. Uh, I found myself um, much more interested in the architectural drawings and the credit report and um, the location in the community that a developer wanted to build than negotiating, you know, 
insurance provisions of what's going to happen in the event of force majeure. That I just found tedious. And um, the long, I think probably part of what really brought it to a head is I had a, my daughter, and I thought, well, I'm leaving her every day, and I, I don't actually feel passionately about what I'm doing. And Harold Washington had just been reelected mayor of Chicago for a second term. And I had a couple friends in particular who had left their law firms to go and take a leave and serve in the public sector. And one of them, uh, Elvin Charity, said, why don't you just do it? Try it for six months. If you don't like it, you can always go back to a law firm. But I think you'll enjoy public service. And so I left that beautiful office with a view of Lake Michigan, and I walked into my cubicle on the fifth floor of City Hall with a window facing an alley, and I felt like I was a part of something bigger than myself. And I have always um, enjoyed it, and I've spent about half my career in the public sector now and about half in the private sector. And I think that each of them made me better at the other. I think as a real estate developer, it was helpful to have been the commissioner of planning and the lawyer that oversaw finance and development for the city so that I would anticipate what issues the city might raise if I tried to build a building, for example, or a big development as a case of what we, my company did. Um, same thing, having worked uh, in the private sector, when I was in city government, I could say, well, you know what? We need to really make decisions promptly because time is money in the private sector. And if the answer is no, tell them no. Don't just procrastinate because every day a developer is being held up, it's costing them money. And so having seen both sides, I think, made me better at both. And uh, for law students who are interested in pursuing a career in public service, would you have any advice as far as a character traits they should develop or other professional experiences they should build to um, successfully pursue such a career? Look, I think that um, the basic concept of you are working on behalf of someone else is there no matter what kind of law you're practicing. Um, I enjoyed my client in the case of the city of Chicago being the city of Chicago as opposed to an individual. I liked thinking that I was there representing the public trust, the public interest. And I think for people who go into, whether you're working at a not-for-profit or the Legal Assistance Foundation or government, there's something satis there should be something satisfying to you about that. It is not going to be as lucrative as a law firm, um, and you need to be prepared for that. But I found it to be more rewarding. And I think part of what the adventure of called life is all about is finding you know, what's rewarding to you. What does that quiet voice inside of you telling you you want to do and being willing to be contrarian to what everyone else is thinking is best for you. If you don't actually think it's best for you. And I have no regrets about my six years at the law firm. I learned a lot, the rigor and the standard and the, the um, attention to detail, all of that was an experience helped me when I went and worked for the city of Chicago. But it's not something I wanted to do for my entire career. And you have to be willing to say, okay, I've done this for a while, I've tried it, and now it's time to try something else. And that doesn't mean that you're a failure at the first thing. It just means that you're trying something else with the next chapter. And you all are fortunate because the way the professional world works today. You get to have multiple chapters. Very few of you will just go to a law firm and do one thing the rest of your life. 
And I encourage people to try something else. And even if you go back to a law firm, you, as I said earlier, you will be a better lawyer having been a client. You will be better in the private sector having seen inside um, what the challenges of, of public service and government actually are. We also spoke to Jarrett about the Me Too movement and her thoughts on needed reforms in American law and society. And so I guess we were also, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you could tell us your views about um, gender equality in the workplace, given the prominence of the Me Too movement. Um, and so um, in particular, you're, you've been serving on the boards of private companies like Lyft. And so we were wondering if you could tell us more about what you think the role of private companies and boards should be to help promote gender equality in the workplace. Uh, yes, I think that... Um creating a 21st century workplace that reflects the values and um, needs of the 21st century worker are essential if you're going to be globally competitive. And so I start with looking at this um, and the way I try to explain it to private employers and certainly on the boards that I'm on is it is in our self-interest to be able to attract and retain the most talented people we can. We shouldn't be leaving half of the people on the sideline. And if we're not creating a culture, and if we don't have policies that enable women to um, compete equitably in the workplace, then that is to our disadvantage. And so I say um, at every one of, on, on every one of the boards on which I serve, I challenge the CEO to demonstrate to the board what kind of a culture they have created. Um, and how do we have policies that reflect that culture? So, for example, are women paid equally? Are there paid leave programs? Are there sick leave programs? Uh, is there workplace flexibility? Are we paying at a working wage where people can support their families? Is there a culture that does not tolerate sexual harassment in the workplace? Is there a culture where that is inclusive, that respects the diversity of the workplace. It looks at diversity as a strength because I think it's a competitive advantage. So I really try to come at it from that perspective. And fortunately, your generation is far more um, demanding of um, ensuring that you're able to have whole lives than my generation was. It would never have occurred to me to ask when I was interviewing for a job if there were a paid leave policy. Just would never have occurred to me. My, I would never have done that. I never, I had never asked. What, well, what are my sick days, or what are my benefits at all? Um, I just was happy to have the job. And I think you all wisely recognize that in order to have a whole life, you need to make sure that you have some benefits that allow you to be who you are. And I encourage um, your generation in the interview process to find out not just can you sell yourself to the employer, whether it's a law firm or public interest or government. But is it a place where you're going to be able to thrive because of the life choices you've made? Um, is it a place that's welcoming of you and all that that entails? Or do you feel like you have to go to work and pretend that you're someone that you're not? And that takes knowing yourself and, again, listening to that quiet voice. Do you think the, 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 the law needs to do more here? Do you think that there's, uh, there needs to be, you know, different types of enforcement mechanisms, or are there other things that we should be doing? Well, 
Um, are you just talking about Me Too and sexual harassment? Or are you talking about more broadly? The reason I ask that question is, so for example, we proposed a federal law that would provide for paid leave. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a paid leave policy. There are 43 million Americans that don't have a single paid sick day. Everybody gets sick. Um, many companies don't provide any sort of workplace flexibility. Childcare is exorbitant. There are lots of women who do not work because they can't afford to pay for childcare. Uh, so we tried to get the Healthy Families Act that would give everybody seven days of paid sick time. We tried to um, take the Family Medical Leave Act, which provides 12 weeks of unpaid leave, and convert that into 12 weeks of paid leave. And we were unsuccessful. But what you are seeing is at the state and local level, there are laws being passed to provide for those kind of benefits. And you're also seeing private employers on their own um, adopt those policies. On the culture issue, I think that part of the enormous success of the Me Too movement is that there is safety in numbers. And this is where social media can be very helpful. And more and more people are coming out and it's terrifying to come out and talk about something so painful and so private. And certainly many people have experienced backlash. But when you know that somebody's got your back, it's a little easier to do it. Um, and ultimately, it's about culture. And I spent a lot of time in the White House focusing, for example, on sexual assault on college campuses. And... Uh, there are lots of factors that can eliminate it. I think probably the most important is the students themselves making up their mind that they don't want to be a part of a community that tolerates sexual violence. And yes, you need to have a supportive school, and schools have a responsibility to their students, but the ability of uh, peers to influence culture is really important. And so, yes, you need to have laws, and I think... Um, Figuring out creative ways of making them more explicit is important. But there's also a cushion on top of the laws called social norms. And that can be changed by the people in the community. And I think seizing that um, agency and that power is something that I encourage everybody to do. And uh, I guess one of the legal issues that's become a point of controversy in the Me Too movement is the prevalence of non-disclosure agreements and settlements for sexual misconduct claims. So I'd be curious about what you think about that issue, because on the one hand, you know, critics could argue that the non-disclosure agreements prevent you, uh, employees who've suffered sexual misconduct from speaking out about it later. But on the other, you might think that it encourages employers to sign the settlements and, or agree to the settlements and makes it easier for employees to obtain legal relief. Um, so, so what do you think about the use of non-disclosure agreements? I'm not in favor of them. I think that you're right. You identified the two kind of public policy objectives. I would rather help ensure that we provide mechanisms for employees to get relief without requiring them to sign the non-disclosures. I think the non-disclosure agreements are um, bad public policy because it solves one problem, but it doesn't take care of the problem. So yes, you get your redress, but it doesn't stop the bad behavior unless just simply paying the dollar amount stops the behavior. But what we've seen now in countless cases is that it doesn't, that people who are predators are serial predators. And if they do it once, they're going to keep doing it. 
And if they're not held accountable, if they're not held accountable uh, in the light of day, and other people who work for that company aren't aware of what's going on, and the company has an appetite for multiple settlements, you can just have a, a culture of sexual violence. And we've seen examples of where that happens. So I do not believe in these non-disclosure agreements. I think we have to think of another mechanism to um, enable employees to be able to bring forth their causes of action, seek redress, be given redress without having to agree to be confidential about it. And I guess another concern with the that's um, been discussed with the Me Too movement has been the possibility of a backlash and also potentially undermining female employees by discouraging male supervisors from mentoring them. Um, do you think those are legitimate concerns? And if so, how would you address them? I think if employers just make up their mind they're going to behave properly, we shouldn't have to worry about a backlash. I think that it is... Um, I think it's nonsense, for example. I've heard from some people who say, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't take a woman on a business trip with me because I'm concerned about um, um, allegations of sexual harassment. Take her on the business trip, just don't harass her, right? I don't think it's that complicated. And I think that we have to really fight back against any sort of backlash because all we're asking for is for people to be decent, abide by the law, and not harass one another. And it's not a big ask. And so I think that those who um, will pretend that they are going to hide behind this as a way of continuing to depress opportunity for women, we should call BS on them. In addition to issues of you know gender diversity, gender equality, um, what else do you hope to you know accomplish you know here in Chicago or you know in these in the years ahead? Well, one of the many reasons why I was interested in joining the faculty here, in addition to the work I'm doing on gender equity, is criminal justice reform. And although I'm not optimistic about Congress passing even the most um, simple of legislation to reduce mandatory minimum sentences on nonviolent drug offenders, I don't think they're going to do that anytime soon. Though they should. I think there's a lot of action at the state and local level, and I'm interested in continuing to build on the research that we did in the White House to make the case to public policy leaders at the state and local level for why it is in their best interest to reform the system and that communities will be actually safer if we reform it and make it fair, that we, if we can keep people from getting caught up in the system in the first place, if we can make the system fairer, and that's everything from police practices to bail reform to looking at our licenses and fees uh, that end up discriminating against the poor and and um, can land them in jail, at least, if not prison, uh, to how we're sentencing and whether judges have the discretion to look at the facts of the individual case and do what's right as opposed to what's... Um, currently required. I think every case is different and discretion is important and that's what judges are for. And then I think we have to look at more creative ways of giving people the tools that they need when they're released from prison to successfully re-enter society and take care of their families. And that if we do that well, we'll have less crime because you won't have recidivism. People forget that in order for there to be recidivism, there's another crime. And if people have a job and they're reunited with their family, 
the chances of that happening go down pretty dramatically. So I'm interested in that. I'm also um, helping President Obama with the Obama Foundation, which I'm very delighted will be a stone's throw from where we are. I'm thrilled that uh, part of the reason why he selected this community is because of his great affiliation with the university and to have young people like yourselves working on civic engagement, which is the the basic platform of the foundation is to create a laboratory for best practices in civic engagement and encourage young people to develop the tools they need to go back to their own communities and solve the problems that exist there. Uh, and then to also take on initiatives like My Brother's Keeper, designed to help boys and young men of color, and other um, issues that both uh, President and Mrs. Obama care about. So I'm spending a fair amount of time with them on that. And I'm writing a book, which I hope you'll all read when it's <laughs> when I finally finish it. Uh, and just kind of catching my breath a little. The other thing that I'm very interested in doing is helping young people run for office and uh, encouraging them to do so. Uh, there is a great new organization called Run for Something, run by Amanda Lippman, who worked on Secretary Clinton's campaign. And she told me that after the election, she just sat on the couch for from the election until January 20th. And January 20th, she said, all right, let me do something. And so now she's helping all these incredible people around the country run for office. And so I think that's great. I think that our democracy is only as strong as the citizens insist that it be. And that if we leave elected officials to their own devices, the scale gets tilted in favor of the special interests like the NRA. And getting good people to uh, who reflect the values of their constituents and who are close to them to get in the game and then to make it as easy for them as possible. And it's never easy. It's hard. It's not for the faint at heart. But it, those of us who have been doing it for a while can make it easier for them. And so I'd like to do that. We really appreciate Ms. Jarrett taking the time to speak with us. This episode of Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review, was produced by Kyle Jorstad, Tom Malloy, Catherine Running, and John Tinkin. Music from bensound.com. Special thanks to the entire online team, including Grace Bridwell, Tom Garvey, and Noel Ottman. And also thanks to our editor-in-chief, Pat Ward. Thanks for listening.